You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Y'all go ahead and grab a seat. How we doing, church fan? Y'all doing all right? Yeah? Doing good, man. Good to see you guys. Hey, we're going to be doing a two-week series uh, in the book of Hebrews. And so uh, I was not doing the whole book, but a little bit of the book. And so if you would turn to Hebrews chapter one, our little two-week series is called Fall on Your Knees. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter one and just a little bit of a reference to chapter two this morning um, as we gear up for Christmas. Can y'all believe Christmas is like, what, 12 days away? Crazy. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm I'm excited. Uh, Again, Hebrews, as you turn in, if you already forgot, Hebrews chapter one. Um, One of my favorite Christmas songs is uh, Oh Holy Night. And one of the lines in the song is fall on your knees. The idea of falling on your knees before King Jesus, this, this baby Jesus. And it's kind of a funny thought to think about like to fall on your knees before a baby. So for example, if like Maybe your friends or uh, your, your siblings, whoever. Uh, maybe your, your sister, let's say, has a baby. And like, think about how awkward it'd be, it would be if your sister and your brother-in-law are like, hey, you can come in, come see me, come see the baby. And like, you walked into the hospital room where the baby was and you were like, fell on your knees before the baby. Your sister would be like, you are so weird, right? Like, get off the floor, what are you doing? It's like, this baby is so amazing. That would be creepy, right? Just, okay. It would be creepy, okay? Some of y'all seem like you're struggling with that. Um, that'd be creepy. The idea of falling on your knees before a baby is, is kind of funny. One of uh, our friends back in Florida, um, she has a daughter. Well, she's older now, but at the time, her daughter of this story, her, her daughter was about four years old. Her name is Ansley. Um, and it was near Christmas time. So they've been talking about Jesus, baby Jesus a lot. And uh, one night, Ansley was, was kind of scared as she was getting ready to go to bed. And so uh, her mom and dad were like, Ansley, look, let's just... Let's pray to Jesus. Jesus is here with us. He will protect you. Let's just pray to him. And Ansley, dead serious, said, Mom, what can he do? He's just a baby. (laughs) Which is kind of a fair question, right? Like to a little girl, like how is this little baby gonna protect me from the dark? It's a funny thing when you think about Christmas and who Jesus is, this little baby, but this, this idea that we're supposed to fall on our knees. We're supposed to worship him. Some may be asking, like, what is the big deal about this little baby? What is the big deal about this baby boy, Jesus? I think as Christians, we, we forget what the big deal is. It's like, yeah, he's just a baby in a manger. And then some people, maybe you're not a Christian because you don't quite get who this baby is. And you really are kind of, you resonate a little, uh, a lot with what I was just saying of like, yeah, why would you fall on your knees before a baby? Why would the wise men travel all this way to see a baby? What's the big deal? Well, the author of Hebrews, he unpacks why this baby boy is such a big deal. So Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So maybe there, you're again, you're like, okay, okay, Jesus or God has spoken to us in Jesus in these last days. But he, the author just said, he's already spoken to us by the prophets. We have the Old Testament. Like what makes him so special? And the author of Hebrews is like, that is a great question. Let me unpack that for you. He says, first of all, he's spoken to us in these 
last days by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So here's the first thing the author tells us. Jesus owns everything. This baby that we worship, that we remember at Christmas, he owns everything. He's the rightful heir. He's been appointed the heir of all things. And the idea is not that all of a sudden Jesus is the heir. Jesus has returned, or excuse me, he has existed forever. And he put on human flesh and blood when he came to this earth, earth. But the point is that God reveals him as the long appointed heir, the owner of absolutely everything. Think about this. Most of us, the things that we own, that we possess, maybe you would say you're an heir to, they can fit in a house. Or maybe like, maybe if you're kind of, have some hoarding tendencies, maybe you have a storage shed somewhere, right? I'm just kidding. (laughs) But yeah, maybe you have a little detached garage, but everything you own can fit in those little areas. And then of course, maybe your parents have a house too with some of your stuff in it, but that's it. The reality is there is no limit. There's no boundary to what Jesus possesses. There's no limit to the things that he owns. He owns it all. And it makes sense. So that's the first thing he says. First of all, he's the heir. He owns everything. And that makes sense because of the second thing he shows us. He says, the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So Jesus is He owns everything. And the second point we see from the text is Jesus made everything, absolutely everything. It says, through whom also he created the world. Don't think through as in like passed through, but through as in how it was accomplished, that Jesus is the agent, the doer of the creation. This matches up with what we just sang and referencing John chapter one, that the word became flesh and he was there at creation, that everything was made through his word. He was the one that accomplished creation. You know, dads, moms, here in about 12 days, you're gonna have the chance to work alongside Santa and to make some things, right? I know you're really excited about that when Santa shows up at your house on Christmas Eve and you have to, you have to build some things late at night. And if you're like me, I'm not mechanically inclined. And so when I build something, I'm like, let's go, Right? Anybody else like that with me? Yeah, I remember when Laura and I were dating. Um, we're married now, anyways. But we were dating, and um, she, you got a chair, a bookshelf, or something. And it was this little, like, four-piece bookshelf. And I was like, I'm gonna show her how manly I am. It was like three hours later, like blood, sweat, and tears. I'm like, I finished the bookshelf. <laughs> like, I was so proud, but also like beaten to death because I made this little something. Or maybe, um, you know, your kids when they're little, they. Uh, um, they do a little painting, a little drawing, and you're like, oh, that is amazing. And you put it on the fridge, right? Or you hang it up on the wall. Or so I was even talking to a college student recently who had to make, and when I was in middle school, we had to make bridges out of toothpicks. But this college student was saying they had to make a contraption out of, um, not, it wasn't toothpicks, but the coffee stirs, coffee sticks, make it on their head where it could hold like two gallons of water. And they were so proud when they finished it. And as awesome as that is, Jesus is like, hey, that's cute but I made the universe. <laughs> He's like, hey, have you ever heard of the Rocky Mountains? Yeah, that's just a little something I formed up. Have you ever heard of the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, I dug that out with my hands and filled it with the water and the sea creatures. Have you ever heard of the sun? Yeah, I open my mouth and things like that just come flying out of my mouth. <laughs> 
He is big. He is powerful. Jesus made everything. And if you're like, you know, okay, like I'm starting to see he's not just a little baby. Like he's kind of a big deal. The author is like, no, bro, we are just getting started. He keeps going. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So here's the third thing that the author shows us. Jesus is everything God is. Jesus is everything God is because he is God. So this little part of first part of verse three is showing that talking about the deity of Christ. That he's, yes, he came as a man, but he is still 100% God. 100% man, 100% God. So he kind of gives us two metaphors here in this first part of he's the radiance of the glory of God. That's kind of the first idea. And then the exact imprint of his nature. But they both carry kind of a similar idea. That being that while the father and son are distinct persons, they are in essence the same being. They are no different. One theologian said it this way. I'll read it slowly because it's thick, but it's really cool. Jesus relates to God the way radiance relates to glory or the way the rays of sunlight relate to the sun. There is no time that the sun exists without the beams of radiance. They cannot be separated. The radiance is co-eternal with the glory. Christ is co-eternal with God the Father. The radiance is the glory radiating out. It is not essentially different from the glory Christ is God standing forth as separate, but not essentially different from the Father. So when it says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the idea is that Jesus is not some lesser version of the glory, the majesty, the wonder of God. No, Jesus is the glory, the majesty, the wonder of God emanating from heaven and touching the earth. How cool is that? He's not some lesser being. So he has that first idea that he's the radiance of the glory of God. And then he gives that that second metaphor, but really the same idea that he is the exact imprint of his nature. So it's the language used for a seal or a stamp or a brand that you, you seal it, you put a brand on there and then you lay the marks beside each other. You can't tell a difference in them. That when you look at this one, It looks just like what you branded. It leaves the same impression, the same mark. The idea is that Jesus is the exact representation of God because guess what? He is God. That if you were, this sounds funny, but if you were to to lay out Jesus and lay out God, they look the the exact same because Jesus is God. He's not some lamer, tamer, milder version of God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. So Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is abounding in love and good to all. Amen? Jesus is God. So any idea of or picture of Jesus that you have in your mind that doesn't line up with who the God of the Bible is is a false picture. And you could also, as a side note, you could flip that. Any idea of God in your mind that doesn't line up with who Jesus is, is a false picture because Jesus is God. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. So again, he's not some lesser, tamer version. Jesus is everything that God is. So what we must say about God, 
we must say about Jesus. So he's got the whole world. I'm gonna lead worship later in case, I don't know, that guy give you a little taste. You're excited about it now, right now. He's got the whole world in his what? Hands. We sing that about God the Father, yes, and we can sing that about who? Jesus, he's got the whole world in his hands. You're like, are you sure? Bro, look at the text. Look at the next point he shows us. So number four, he uphold, I'm kind of halfway through verse three, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So that's the fourth thing we see. Jesus upholds everything. He upholds everything. He really does have the whole world in his hands. Every fiber of the universe is dependent on him. All of creation goes and fulfills its purpose just as Jesus has declared it to. So by the word of his power, excuse me, by the word of his power, your heart beats. By the word of his power, the breath comes in and out of your lungs. By the word of his power, the earth orbits and the sun shines. The seasons come and the years go because Jesus upholds everything. It's not just a little baby. <laughs> he upholds everything. He is incredibly powerful, powerful and in control. So he's heir, the, excuse me, the owner of everything. He made everything. He is everything God is. He upholds everything. Now see this, that Jesus, look what he accomplished. I'm gonna start back at the beginning of verse three just so you can stay with me. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus who owns everything, who made everything, who's everything God is, who upholds everything. This same Jesus left heaven's throne, took on human form, did not count equality with God, as Philippians 2 says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. That Jesus, who owns everything, came to earth to make purification for sins. Think about that contrast. Who he is and what he's done. So Jesus, seeing that you were burdened by the weight and the guilt and the condemnation of your sins, came to this earth so that he could carry the heavy burden of the cross to pay the price for your sins, amen? Seeing that you were beat up and defeated because of your sin and the guilt and the condemnation and the shame of your sin, seeing that he came to earth to make purification for your sins by being beat up by the weight of the cross. 
Jesus, seeing that your sin had taken you farther than you ever thought or hoped or imagined that it would, came to this earth to be stretched out on the cross to pay the price for your sins. He came so you could make purification for your sins. See, Jesus, he didn't just say, you know what, I'm up in heaven, I'm going to do my thing. He said, no, I'm a friend of sinners. That's who God is. I'm going to come to pay the price for your sins. Jesus, it's kind of funny to think about as a little baby, he could have been like, come to this earth, see how we are in human form and be like, nah, y'all fools can get what y'all deserve. I'm going back to heaven, right? That's not what he did. Jesus was willing to pay the price for your sins. And the rest of Philippians 2 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So yes, he made purification for sin. And now he sits, the text says, at the right hand of God. I'm gonna read the rest of that. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it means the purification for sins, that work is done. So he's not like a priest in the Old Testament that has to go over and over and over again, try to provide purification for sins and try to make things right. No, Jesus had the one time, once for all, perfect sacrifice. And now it says he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than there. So Jesus owned this way. Jesus owns everything. He made everything. He is everything God is. He upholds everything. He paid for everything. That was number five. He made purification for sins. He paid for everything. And number six, he rules everything. <laughs> That's the idea that he sits beside the right hand or at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is in the place of authority as the ruling king. Jesus is the king who sits enthroned in the place of chief honor alongside the majesty on high. So it says there's no one more powerful. There's no one bigger. There's no one better than Jesus. He sits enthroned at the right hand of God as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules everything. Amen. And if you're like, you know, I, I, I really do get it. Like Jesus is a big deal. The author of Hebrews is like, you know what? You didn't say amen loud enough. I got more to say, bro. <laughs> he says in verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, don't miss what's happening here. The author is, he's contrasting, comparing Jesus to angels, which angels are pretty awesome. He's comparing angels to Jesus. So I'll start again, verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, Jesus, into the world. So this is Christmas. That's Christmas. The firstborn God, the son who's existed forever. When he came into the world, put on flesh and blood. Of that, God said, let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And still speaking of Jesus, he says, verse 10, quoting the Psalms, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like an old garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, Jesus, are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So, man, don't you love that? The author just kind of went, I think this was, Hebrews was likely a sermon, and the preacher just went off on, you want to talk about Jesus? And he has this amazing contrast comparison. Here's who Jesus is. He laid the foundation of the earth. One day, Jesus is going to roll up the heavens like a little garment. The angels compared to Jesus are nothing because Jesus is everything. He's so incredibly big and powerful and supreme. He's not just a little cute little baby. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who paid for all of our sin. He is the one who upholds everything. He is everything God is. He made everything and he owns everything. It's Jesus. That's why he says, such a big deal that he's back in verse one or verse two of chapter one, that he's spoken to us by his son. And this is a big deal because in Jesus, God has broken through the silence to speak to us, even though we've been blocking his call for a long time. The idea is that Jesus is the ultimate word of God. If every word of Christianity be stripped away and only one could remain, that one word must be Jesus. God's spoken to us through the prophets. Yes, it's God's word. But Jesus is this kind of climactic, ultimate word of God. Everything be stripped away. The one word that must remain is Jesus. Now don't miss this. The author doesn't stop there and go, all right, well, that was cool. Cool, Jesus is cool. He's a really big deal, man, that's awesome. We could stop there. We could just stop there and just worship right now. But in chapter two, I'm not gonna read it all to you. Actually, I'm doing okay on time. I'm gonna read it. Verse one, he says, therefore, so because of who Jesus is, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, when every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What does that mean? Really simple. He says, look, pay attention to what you've heard about Jesus, namely the gospel, that though we are broken and wretched, sinful, evil people, God in Jesus spoke to us a message of forgiveness and salvation. 
He came to pay the price for our sins. Yes, King Jesus came to pay the price for our sins if we will simply turn to him in faith and salvation. So he says, therefore, pay attention to this word. Don't miss it. The idea of verses two through four is you thought the punishments for disobeying God in the Old Testament were bad? You had seen nothing yet. If you disobey Jesus, meaning you Better way to say it. If you reject the message that God has spoken in Jesus, so you, you take your phone, like, I'm gonna block Jesus. I'm tired of hearing from him. You put him on block and ignore the message God has sent in Jesus. Hell is what's coming for you. So as we close, here, here's kind of the application he gives. It says, therefore, pay attention so we don't drift away. Two kinds of people in here. First, the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the idea here is a lot of people that he uses an image of a, of a boat coming up to a dock. So a lot of people, if here's the dock, here's Jesus, excuse me, I said that wrong. If Jesus is the dock and here's you, you, you pull your boat up close to Jesus in that like, maybe you come to church, you've heard the gospel message, you try to do some good things, but you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and said, hey, my only hope is in Jesus and his righteousness. He's the king of kings. He paid the price for my sins. I'm gonna place my faith and trust in him. He said, you've never done that. So you've never actually tied your life onto Jesus. Like a boat would take the rope and tie on. What's that? There's a word for that. I can't think of Like kind of not anchor, but everybody get what I'm saying? All right, okay. I should have looked up that word, but you tie on to the dock. saying you've never tied on. You've never really paid attention and latched on to Jesus. So the reality is when the waves and the wind of this life come, it pulls you away from Christ and you float on down the river showing you never actually had a relationship with him. So you were close. You looked like you knew Jesus, but you were, you never actually had faith. You never actually latched on to him and he to you. Does that make sense? There could certainly be people in this room that that's you. You're like, man, I've, I've gone to church a lot. I've been a good person. I think Jesus is cool. If that's you, you may have pulled up next to Jesus, but you've never tied onto him. You've never latched onto him. So the call to you this morning, if you're not a believer, is to respond as the author says in chapter two, pay attention. Don't drift away. Cling to Jesus. Respond to the gospel. Say, Jesus, you're my only hope. I'm turning to you for salvation the wind and waves may come, but Lord, I'm latched onto you. I'm trusting you for salvation. I'm gonna follow you. The response for believers, the other kind of person in this room is, is pretty similar. I think he's writing to believers here and he's saying, again, pay attention to what you've heard to the gospel, what you know of Jesus, what you've been taught about Jesus, which you just laid all that out. Pay attention so you don't drift away. So again, it's that same idea of if Jesus is the dock and we're the boat pulling up, latch on, pay attention. So if you're a Christian, the reality is by faith, you've already latched on to Christ. He's latched on to you in faith. You've latched on to him in faith. I should say it that way. You, so you place your faith and trust in him. But the reality is even as believers, sometimes the slack in that rope gets a little bit too long, doesn't it? So we, we begin to drift away. And sometimes that drifting is because we begin to rely on our own good, quote, good works and think we're pretty awesome. So we start focusing on ourselves, or maybe we begin to drift away because we're like, 
you know what, I'm actually a pretty good person. Like Jesus died for me and that's cool, but like I'm actually pretty good. And so you're like, and so you begin to drift away or you begin to drift away because you feel like, you know what, my sin is not that big of a deal to Jesus. Like Jesus is cool with that. The call of Hebrews chapter two, based on Hebrews chapter one is to say, wake up, quit drifting. There's no more important word. There's no important message. There's no more important narrative. There's no more important story to wrap your life around than the story of Jesus. That yes, he came as a little baby, took on flesh and blood to pay the price for your sins. So latch on, hold on tight, cling to him. For the Christian clinging to Christ, latching onto him is saying, Rain or sun, wind howling, waves rolling, rain coming down, I will cling to Christ no matter what because he is my all, my hope, my everything. Cling to the king. Our hope, our all, our everything. Y'all stand and sing with us. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 